Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we explore the art of improving existing software with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations overcome the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, Arpit Muhan, who is a co-founder and the CTO of AppSmith, which describes itself as an open source, low code platform for building internal tools for organizations. Arpit joins us from Bangalore, India. Arpit Muhan, we're so glad to have you join us on Maintainable. Welcome. Oh, thank you so much, Robbie. It's an absolute pleasure to be here on the show today. Excellent. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common characteristics of, dare I say, well-maintained software? Well, well, I think uh, most of the best practices that are espoused across the industry uh, typically originate from the, the idea or the will to have well-maintained software. The first, I think the biggest of the principles uh, or the overarching principles is that code is read a lot more than it is written. Uh, so that is why it's it's very important for engineers across the globe to kind of write code for humans. The, the compilers, the machines itself, at the end of the day, it gets you know, compiled down to some byte code, some you know, bits and bobs. So, so the machine doesn't really care whether you wrote something in Ruby or C or C++, doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is, were we able to get the point across to the reader three months from now, three years from now, 30 years from now? And uh, that, I think, is uh, is a very overarching principle that then leads to all the other principles that we kind of keep hearing across the board, right? You know, and we hear dry principle or, you know, solid or, you know, everybody loves these acronyms in the industry. So there are a lot of these acronyms, but more often than not, they just originate from this very simple idea that write code for humans and not machines. And uh, some of the principles around, you know, reading code rather than writing code is you know, a very simple thing is about like commenting as your comments. Uh, some people believe that, you know, good code does not require comments. And I, I so disagree with that because great code does require comments, not to explain the what, because the what is explained in the for loop or the while loop that just followed, but to explain the why, why was this written? What was the context behind it? Were there any constraints that we had to, or the author had to follow at that given point in time? Were they under a strict deadline to deliver that midnight? Maybe production was down. They just introduced a hack to just get everything up. So there's a lot of context that kind of at times goes missing in code comments. And a lot of, uh, very often, and I'm, I'm, I'm guilty of doing this as well, is uh, I've written comments that just say, oh, this function does X. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it clearly does X. I can see that it does X. What what it doesn't tell me is why does it do X? Why what what is the larger you know picture that we were trying to build? So so that's a, like a very little sort of quality of life thing, which uh, kind of leads to just better maintained uh, long term software. You know, one of the things I'm always curious about with code comments. You know, I come from a, a world where yeah the Clean code, like Ruby is very, I work in primarily with Ruby, and Ruby is very English-like in a lot of ways, right? And so it's, it's, it's easy to read. I like, at least that's something we like to tell ourselves. But you're right. We don't always understand why 
things work the way they do when we're looking at some existing code, whether I wrote it in the past or other people, we inherited some projects. So if you had like scenarios where you have little code, but we, we also have git commit history, hopefully referencing some original story or ticket in some ticketing system that hopefully you still have access to, or where, where do you find that balance of like, how much why do you, do you advocate for including near, like really close to where the code is versus knowing that there could be some linkage to some other resources that could help explain that, why things are the way they are? Uh, so I think uh, personally, I would kind of make that distinction based on how the code is actually being used. For example, if you are the author of let's say the Spring framework or the Django framework. And in framework level code, because your code is being used as a library, as a framework by other developers, uh, in those cases, more often than not, you'll see that there is a lot of comments in the code itself because more often than not, people will just try to go uh, read your source code to try and see uh, you know, what this function really does. You know, so, so something, you know, there's a function that just does sort. So you just want to very quickly see, oh, you know what's happening inside the sort. So you want to kind of explain what is happening in sort or how you're doing it within the within the code file itself. Uh, yes, uh, obviously, you know the Spring Framework, for example, has a lot of you know documentation, Git history, etc. associated with it. But in that moment, all that your reader cares about is, oh, how does this really work right now, so that I can get myself unblocked right now. Uh, in contrast to this, uh, a lot of SaaS software, for example, which is all closed source and it's proprietary, that particular code is not going to be read by, you know, if you're lucky, it's going to be read more by more than like 50 people or 100 people, you know, if, if you are a successful startup. So in those cases, it's it's okay to kind of have maybe a little more distributed history across your pull request and your maybe some internal wiki uh, some documentation, etc., and because you know that all of these resources a will be accessible to the reader or the next developer, and it's also they have the time and the patience and the financial incentive to actually go hunt for that answer. In the case of you just using, uh, like I said, a framework, there is no real financial or time incentive for your reader to go hunt for. All the solutions, you the answer better be you know two lines above the problematic line of code or on the first result on Stack Overflow. If it's not on either of these two results, the reader will most probably just move on and say, oh, you know, you know what, I'm gonna hack my way around this function, or I'm just not gonna use this function, or something to that effect. So, so I think it it, it leads from how that code is actually going to be used. I think that's a good good distinction there where. You know, you're thinking about open source software and the you don't always know how people are going to use it either, right? And so it's like there's a lot of ways that people can use those frameworks. You mentioned Spring and, or Ruby on Rails or what have you. And yeah, you're right. There's a lot more documentation that's built into the code. It's interesting. I always think back to some of the earliest closed source projects I worked on where because I was very interested in open source software already, I was trying to follow that sort of documentation approach for our own project or client projects. But then, like quickly, that started to feel like a huge time suck in some ways, and I was like, "Well, 
how many other people are going to like need to see like who needs to generate the automated fancy looking documentation in this project just from the code when we're, we've got test coverage that is hopefully explaining why if there's some functionality the way it is. So if it, is there also a distinction there around, you would say, from having like why we're doing things? Do you feel like sometimes they, I think, I guess that kind of speaks to the how in a test, like how this should perform or behave when you're interacting with it. You're talking about explaining the why code is doing what it's doing. At what level is it just to saw? Do you, do you get more macro level being like, the business is needing us to do this because of X, Y, and Z, and so this is where we're getting into when we're looking at a specific function. Uh, is that too macro level, or like where's that fine line there for you? Uh, it's obviously a fine line that we as developers will never be able to walk cleanly. Uh, we will almost always sort of err on one side or the other at any given point of time in the project or in a given company. Either it'll be too much code and or too much comments or too little comments uh, in the code. A good kind of principle that I, or a thumb rule that I typically try to follow is if a particular piece of code is constantly being refactored, it's constantly being added to or subtracted from, then that means this place needs more a lot more comments because either it's an evolving business need or it's complex. So therefore, you know, more use cases are being, you know, added to it. Or for some reason, if that file, that class, etc., is being touched a lot, then that's a great kind of place to, you know, take five minutes out, 10 minutes out and start explaining in a lot more detail why certain things are being written uh, in a certain fashion. In places where, uh, you know, it's, it's clearly just, you know, an HTTP handler, it's really not doing much you can maybe sort of get by by just saying, hey, you know, this just fetches a list of users for the user management screen. That's it. You don't really need to give a lot more context. So, yeah, so a good sort of thumb rule is start small and sort of land and expand in terms of even with comments as it is with like features. Because a lot of the comments as well follow another acronym, the YAGNI principle, uh, which is you ain't gonna need it. So, don't bother writing too much unless you really need to. What sort of documentation would you like to see here? I think is maybe a good, you know, like for your future self uh, as well, like allowing yourself to forget information so you don't have to keep all this stuff, you know, sitting around in your head for. Yeah, uh, a, a, a great example of this is uh, within the AppSmith code base as well. You know, there is this little part uh, of the code which is quite hairy. And uh, as with all you know, products, there is always this little corner, dark corner in the code base. And because it deals with uh, you know, abstract syntax trees, it deals with ASTs, it deals with you know, code manipulating other code, et cetera, it's not the easiest to just sort of dive in and you know, modify for a different use case. This leads to every time a developer has gone in to try and fix a bug or add a use case to that, it's been like two weeks of sort of just orientation before you actually get to that bug fix on its own. And when we started to notice that, that's when we started to do right now within the AppSmith code base, that is our most well-documented, you know, sort of module, if you will. It has diagrams, it has links to Miro boards, it has a developer talking over a YouTube video, a YouTube link, 
explaining what is happening here. So, so it has a lot of context and a lot of documentation around it because it's not that easy to grok. And we realized it. And and a principle for every developer now we kind of have a thumb rule within AppSmith is that if you go touch that module, please make the commenting better. It's not so much as make the code better, but it's like, oh, you know, make the commenting better because what did you not understand? Write that then and there because you will forget about this in a week's time. We'll be back with our interview with Arpit in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you, thank you, thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable Software Podcast. If you're enjoying conversations like this with Arpit, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers on social media, LinkedIn, what have you, and or writing a review on Apple Podcasts to help spread the word. Like, really, it does go a long way, and it's really helpful to see your comments and input. So thank you in advance for doing that. Like, you could do that right now. You could hit pause on this episode and just go like, I'm really enjoying this episode of Maintainable. Like on Twitter, like right now, you could do that. Are you following us on Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok? I think we're doing TikTok soon. Maybe. Anyhow. Also, is there someone you think I should be interviewing on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm and state your case. And now let's get back to our interview with Arpit Mohan. I want to switch gears a little bit with you. And do you use the the metaphor technical debt very often in your day to day work? Uh, in the last few months, a lot. Uh, yeah, I mean, technical debt again is uh, is another reality that any long standing software would see. And I'm sure you've seen that with Oh My ZSH, uh, which by the way is a wonderful uh, piece of software. And I'm sure that you know, even though it's it's a mature, stable. A piece of code. I'm sure there are things out there which, you know, many years ago when you first wrote it, they today it bites you maybe or it prevents certain things from happening in the future because of a decision you took back then. So yeah, so technical debt is uh, uh, is definitely a part and parcel of our lives, and 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 I think the way we kind of try to look at tech debt, again, all debt is not equal. So there's this common analogy that we all end up using, right? It's, you know, equating it to financial debt. That's a very, very common sort of way of trying to understand and uh, and how we pay back that debt. But I, I would say that all debt is not created equal, uh, the same way all financial debt is not created equal. It's impossible for us to build software without debt. So in and of itself, technical debt is not bad. Uh, it allowed you to do certain things, allowed you to move faster. It allowed you to validate your your project, your startup, etc. So you absolutely should take that debt. And there are times where you think you're not taking debt, and that tends to be typically products that are overdesigned, overthought, and maybe an overkill. So, uh, for example, uh, one of the things uh, you know now that. Say, for example, so AppSmith is a three-year-old project. And three years ago, we actually never foresaw some of the some of the use cases that uh, we are seeing today. And even if we had sat down and tried to you know, write with zero tech debt, there was no way, absolutely no way that we would have you know, dreamt of the situations that we find ourselves in today. 
And so that kind of leads to a whole discussion that, oh, you know, now we are older, we are wiser, we know a little more about the world. So now if we have to do this, what would we change? How would we improve it? And and then we kind of pay, try to pay off that debt as much as possible, as much as like humanely possible, I would say. How does your team go about prioritizing or capturing those ideas? Or do you, is it something that you just kind of instinctively know or like if you just talk to anyone on the team like we know those those areas we've talked about it but do you actually document that anywhere and be like this is an area we need to come back to at some point especially if not all technical debt being considered equal do you rank them in some way do you have a process for like okay every x months we come back and we do something about these things like how does your how does AppSmith approach that sort of challenge uh, to be honest i wish we were that organized uh, about uh, some of these things so we have a a, a, an open running document where every engineer has the liberty and does go if whatever they think is tech debt, quote unquote, uh, they have the freedom to go add to that list, you know, Excel sheet that we maintain. But in order for us to prioritize whether we are going to answer or sort of pay back some of this debt depends on a very basic question. Is this preventing us from moving faster? If this module, this class, whatever it is, is preventing us from adding new features faster, it's preventing us from moving faster, then we pay it off. If not, it's okay for that debt to stay. It's okay for us to maybe just keep doing some maintenance on it, but not really try to modularize it, improve the test coverage or anything of that nature. So speed of change is the only sort of metric that we use. And do you, is that a metric that you often quantify or is that kind of like a subjective feeling at this point uh, about like it's things are taking longer? How do you how do you kind of feel confident about that? I would say it's a lot more subjective than uh, objective because at times when you try to estimate some issues or you try to kind of look at something, you know, there's this gut feel that, oh, I'm going to get this done in like two, three days. Even if you're off by 100%, which most of us are, two, three days means maybe six days. And you find yourself still in the problem two weeks later. Then there is something that is grossly off. So which means that there was some friction, there was some code smell, maybe there was an architecture smell that prevented you from moving faster in that area, in that module. So more often than not, yeah, it's subjective where on and off, like the more people in the team feel that, hey, you know, somehow I'm estimating, uh, you know, X days and I'm not routinely off by 100%. Now I'm off by 300%. Then that's a smell like, oh, you know, there's something that we're doing that that needs to be relooked at that piece. Let's take a moment to, to dig into AppSmith a bit. Um, for those who are unfamiliar, what problems are you helping solve with AppSmith? Oh, so AppSmith is an open source, uh, low code uh, application builder. So it helps developers build a lot of the internal tools like admin panels, dashboards, very, very quickly. So you can get off the ground. You you want a UI that talks to your Postgres database and your REST API together to perform a little function for your team. AppSmith can get you up and running in like five minutes or so with a fairly decent looking UI. So yeah, so that's what we do, a low code application builder. 
is it the sort of thing where there's you have like a large collection of integrations already available, or is it kind of like you can just connect it to any sort of REST API and and kind of work with that? So the way it works is uh, we ship a Docker container. So you just spin up a Docker container on your local machine, on your EC2 instance, Azure VM, wherever you are, uh, inside your own firewall, inside your own uh, uh, VPC. And uh, this Docker container, the AppSmith Docker container, contains the, the AppSmith engine, which has about 17 or 18 odd database integrations. So you can connect to Postgres, MySQL, Mongo, a bunch of other databases. You can connect to REST APIs out of the box, and it has about uh, about 40-odd uh, UI widgets as well. So you have tables, buttons, etc. So you can just uh, spin up a Docker container and then literally just start building and say, oh, I want a table over here, a button on the top, and a graph over here, and a form over there, so on and so forth. So you can just wire everything up within the AppSmith engine and deploy your app on your own uh, machine. So uh, it's a web-based uh, or a web-first uh, system right now. We we not we don't do very well on the mobile front yet, but yeah, but it's a web-based tool shipped as a Docker container. Interesting. So it's more. I think you use an example of maybe building out some like dashboards and maybe like reports pulling in data from different systems. Sounds like making an assumption there. I haven't played with it yet or mm-hmm. looked too deeply into it. But can you also do things like? write to APIs and stuff through it? Can you, so you can post as well? So it's not just a... Yeah. So so uh, while there are, uh, and one of the reasons that we started out with AppSmith was because there were a lot of, I would say, uh, reporting dashboards that were available out there, but not a lot of good systems that wrote back to your database, to your API, to your CRM, etc. So uh, I think AppSmith, where it shines or it does really well is in operational systems, so if you have a, you need to build a customer support dashboard or a user management system to authorize your users or something like that. Uh, so especially if that data is coming from multiple different sources. So let's say your order information is coming from Salesforce, your user information is coming from Postgres, and your support information is coming from Zendesk. You want to collate all of that, show it on a single dashboard, on the click of a button, go update all three sources of data. So that's where uh, AppSmith really does a lot of the heavy lifting for the developer. So you don't have to code all of this out. A lot of it is just Lego blocks building on top of each other. Interesting. I'm going to have to play around with that. I'm curious about, we have some, you know, a number of little internal projects we built over the years that do some like data syncing between different, you know, different services that we use, like we're, we're consultant consultancy, and so we we've got all our time tracking and harvest, but we also want all of our actual time get logging into Jira. So we have like a little piece, some kind of like a little small glue app that transfers that stuff and looks for weird anomalies and lets us know like, hey, you might have logged this time to the wrong client. You might can you double check that? Like we have things like that. So yeah, I've always wondered about like I mean, there's got to be some tools that can do this so I can because I'm the one that inherited that project so every time it has a problem i gotta fix it and i'm like ah, we should probably just go look for something else yeah you should definitely check out AppSmith because uh, uh like i said one of the reasons we built it is because uh, so over the past sort of decade or so i've done multiple startups so i've seen a lot of these growing teams um, i'm a back-end engineer i do not enjoy html css for that matter react a lot being the co-founder i was almost always tasked with building all of this stuff out because you want your engineers to be focused on the core you know, business aspect or the revenue generating aspect. 
So as a CTO, I would be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do this. I'll just do this for this other team or that other team. And at one point, I just got tired of building the same stuff, the same app panels again and again and again. So that's why we did AppSmith. You know, if you're thinking, having been on multiple in, in startup environments, are there takeaways that you've learned, whether it's open source or closed source projects that, you know, you mentioned that's like it, inevitable that you're going to have technical debt. Are there things where you now would be like, you've learned like, all right, let's not prematurely optimize certain areas of the code base at this point. What are some takeaways that you've you've had over the years that might be like, you would advise like someone starting a new SaaS product or something like, don't worry about these. Do you have any hit quick little things or recommendations you'd have there? Yeah, absolutely. One of the uh, big learnings was, uh, was the difference in how a lot of B2C products get built versus B2B. At the, at the core of it, you can be like, hey, you know, it's just, you know, Facebook and uh, maybe Monday.com. Well, it's the same, you know, developers who are getting hired from here to there and vice versa. Uh, it's a similar stack. Uh, it's the same, you know, whatever language, product, hosting, etc. But the in B2C products, because the speed of change and the uncertainty or, or at least this is what I think, the uncertainty is high in terms of product market fit. Uh, B2C products invest very little in testing. So if you are doing a, a product out there and it's a B2C company, it's okay. I mean, you're not the first company that's not going to invest in testing. You know, the, the reason the adage move fast and break things happened with Facebook was because, yeah, they just needed to move really fast, like really, really fast. Uh, on the other hand, B2B companies, they favor a lot more predictability, stability, because you know maybe the account sizes are larger, you know, you're working in a slightly more professional environment, etc. At that point, if you're building, let's say, Monday.com, please don't go in without testing. Because you're gonna cost it's gonna cost you a lot more in terms of lost revenue, lost time, which you could have caught with testing. So that's the first like premature testing is is one. More often than not, it's actually depends on where you are in this in this globe. But oftentimes, it's actually a little cheaper to have a human run through 50 scenarios than you sit getting a highly paid developer to write 50 scenarios that run on a CI and then uh, etc. So A, measure the costs and don't do premature optimization on the cost. The other one was around performance. Performance is a big reason for developers or users moving from one product to another especially in the in the b2b sort of world i think and one of the things that we so our our previous product that we were doing we were actually doing a mobile game uh, very similar to hq trivia at that point we kind of scaled to about a million downloads on the play store 120000 uh, concurrent users at any point of time during the day and all of this happened in a span of four or five months of us launching, going viral, and then eventually saying, hey, you know, we've had enough of it. And one of the things that we learned from, and, and by the way, this was all like four engineers, two backend engineers, two front-end mobile engineers, and that's it. That was our entire team. And one of the things that we kind of learned from there was a uh, problem you don't create is a problem you don't have to solve. Our first iteration of the code was poor is giving it a lot of credit. I would say it was quite, quite bad because... We followed the first principle where we said, oh, you know, you just give something out there, ship it, let's see what sticks. It stuck. 
And then it stuck so hard with our users that it became insanely hard. It was really, really hard for us to kind of keep the lights on, keep adding new features, still maintain stuff, respond to 3,000 emails a day. It was just nightmarish at that point. That's interesting. The uh, The aspect of uh, thinking around B2B versus B2C, maybe the, the stakes are potentially higher with the B2B relationship where you might have like a contract, you might have an SLA service level agreement for those listening, if you're not sure what that means. But like, if you have a larger client contract, like we're getting, especially if you get into the corporate world where they get access to your platform, you mentioned like monday.com or something, and you're kind of on an enterprise level, like that's mission critical for that company to build a user application where I'm, I'm, I'm assuming you're, when you think about the consumer side of things, maybe the consumers may or may not be pulling out their credit card to interact with your, you know, it's, and it's maybe it's something you're offering I'm air quoting free in exchange for advertising, you know, being the way. Or, and so it's not, it's disruptive when people can't access your tool to some degree, but it's not the same as the business that can't perform some of their business duties for half of a day because your app's down. So I can, that's, that's an interesting distinction there. I don't feel like I really thought too much about myself, mainly probably because we're mostly, I'm usually working in the B2B project world, thinking about that scenario where you had like the game and such and like how quickly it scaled up in users and such. Was that a consumer-based? It was a consumer game. It was a consumer game, yeah. Do you feel like you would have been able to achieve that level of scale if you would have, had been able to like put more energy ahead of time in like, making your future self better off? Or did... Oh, absolutely not. Uh, absolutely <laughs> not. I think what we did at that point, I would probably do it again because uh, if we had you know taken a more time to test, to do you know, all of that, we probably would have missed the the boat on user attention because uh, there is, with consumers, there's almost always like a user attention span that is like constantly moving. And uh, we would have probably missed the boat on, you know, had we taken a more time to kind of ship something of higher quality. But I, I think what would have done us a world of good, so maintenance is not, well-maintained software is not just about testing. It's also a lot of, some of the principles that you just start out with. Uh, for example, performance was a big, big problem for us. We were running, you know, at that point, we were just throwing hardware at the problem till we actually solved the, the underlying problems. At one point, we were running about, uh, you know, about 90 servers. Each of them were 64 GB RAM. Uh, how many other cores we could get with that? You know, we were just bleeding out money at that point. But what would have done us a lot of good was just follow some like basic performance principles. Things like, oh, if you don't have to go outside your heap of memory, don't go. Store it in heap. Don't even go to Redis. Don't even go to your database. Just store it in heap. It's okay if all 10 servers or your cluster has the exact same replication of data. That's duplication of data, but that's okay. So that's one. The other is, as far as possible, avoid creating garbage. Most languages today are garbage collected. So this one was written in Java. So avoid garbage because if you don't create garbage, then uh, there's lesser you know garbage collection pressure on the system and you're not going to see those pause times. So just don't create the garbage. You don't have an object, don't create it. So basic principles like these had we kind of just followed and it's not that oh, following this principle will take you more time. It's just about being a little more intentioned when writing that piece of software. And a lot of these problems could have just been avoided. We could have not had to go through all of this pain that we did. 
or we would have gone through lesser pain if but yeah but we did then we learned now i'm a lot wiser for it i always wonder if people go through these transitional phases in their career where they you're able to experiment you learn from things and then do you feel like you've gotten more overly cautious as as you've progressed in your career or do you feel like you're like no, i understand when we can make reasonable trade-offs and not over but it's not over optimized right now and and how does that work when you're got like a team of people that you're that potentially work with you or under you in, in your current organization do they have their own ideas about what's important now or not or how do you share those stories in a way that's meaningful to them if they haven't experienced that themselves yet uh, i think more than cautious i would say as with all other humans i have gotten more boring with age and i aspire to be boring so i think my aspirations are now to be as boring as possible in technology choices in um, you know database choices in you know, literally everything that i kind of have to do with work i aspire to be boring because boring lasts the new fangled js framework that came out yesterday i'm going to probably give it a little bit of time i'm going to see if you know it survives the test of time if it's still around in like a year or two i'll give it a shot but uh, i'll i'll play around with it over a weekend just to see if there are new ideas that are being espoused you know what can be learned from it but not necessarily end up using it so yeah, so more than cautious i would say boring is the word and uh, so as we kind of talk to younger engineers also who work with us obviously they have their own ideas and you know i would say the energy of youth is is important in any team where you need to have uh, I, i don't know if you have children but you know when you have children they're just interested in oh, 100 things between your door and your car and yeah you need that energy but uh, that doesn't mean that you're going to end up doing that it just means oh maybe there's something interesting there let's see what we can learn from it but as far as possible stick to boring principles i, I like that that angle there it's like important to be curious about things but it doesn't mean we have to kind of chase things i suppose or try to keep up with things one of the things that i've found over the years with you know as we recruit junior people under our team or have interns come in from time to time is that there's always this kind of interesting thing where i've i've had people you know say like oh well the technology that you, plant my company specializes in being ruby on rails it's like oh it's not the hot thing anymore aren't you concerned about it and i'm like There's a lot of projects out there that was written Ruby on Rails and you know it it's an interesting it's but they're worried about how their resume is going to look in the future like well if i just work with this one frame i'm not working with a new hot framework i'm not going to go i'm not going to be relevant right or i'm i'm going to have the wrong skill set so they're kind of worried about you know the the list of languages that they and frameworks that they can list on their resume and so it's and then i know that there's we have clients that we work with where we can we've seen that there's like turnover on their team and they've introduced a lot of different frameworks over the years and they've got okay well they got their jquery phase here they got some react over here they have some backbone over here and there's all these different eras of javascript frameworks and you're like oh this is now a bit of a mess as a because you've got all these things kind of running in parallel and none of the new people know what the old stuff does and why it's still there they just know it needs to go away because no one that they know works with that stuff. So it's it's an interesting challenge there. Do you do you find that with the people that you're working with that like how do you allow them to experiment and 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 stuff that, like when you're managing a team? No, uh, every now and then I do end up sort of uh, 
facing the same sort of conversation that you are talking about. I end up uh, having that same sort of similar-ish conversation. And this, if you notice, will almost invariably happen with younger folks a lot more than it happens with like more senior folks who've seen the, you know, the curves of time and the sands of time. They've seen, you know, PHP at its dominance and then PHP, you know, falling from uh, favor, Python being popular in the 90s, then not so much in the 2000s, then 2010s, it became super popular again. So this is all like, the more you kind of see these cycles run, the less you start to get affected by it. Uh, but to slightly more younger folks, one of the things that I kind of talk to them about is, is that software is is a craft. It's it's a lot more to do with, there is science involved, obviously. There is a lot, lot of uh, principles of science or maths or computer science involved. But at the end of the day, you writing code is still a craft. And a poem in any language now, whether that was Spanish, that was Latin, that was English, is beautiful in its own language. And what we aspire to be is poets. We, you want to express yourself the best way that you can in the language that you can. Yes, when you shift languages, when you suddenly start learning Spanish for the first time, obviously you're not going to be a poet in your first week. That will probably take a couple of years of you writing, learning Spanish. That's okay. But the inherent I would say the inherent uh, art of expressing, that does not get lost. So if you are able to express yourself really well in, let's say, English, there is a very, very high probability that you will still express yourself very well in a similar, you know, maybe a Germanic uh, language origin. Uh, you might struggle a lot more with Arabic, which has whole different origins, but at least in this field, in this area of languages, which there are quite a few, you'll express yourself quite well because you have that gift of the expression. So aspire to be a poet and not a copywriter. If you're a copy editor, yes, you have to have a command over that very specific language. But we are not copy editors. We are poets. Be the author. Hmm. And we're, uh, we're consumers of that, uh, readers of that, you know, and as coders, as you said, you know, most of the time we spend a lot of time reading code and we don't, I don't think we talk enough about that in our industry. Yeah, so that's the other bit that uh, I, I kind of very strongly believe in is uh, as developers, you know, one of the things that I keep asking people is what did you read last week? One of the common trends within AppSmith is, oh, what did you read last week? 90% of the time, somebody will talk about some book that they read or, you know, some interesting video that they watched. And one of the things that I keep telling or I keep trying to push for is, oh, the book is fine. So your English got better. But what code did you read? Like, not code in AppSmith, did you try to read how Django is written? Did you try to read how React is written? And the more you read a particular style of code, the more your brain starts to output the same thing, which is why your speaking gets better if you hear stuff, your writing gets better when you read stuff. Similarly, your code gets better if you just read more code. I think that's a really important thing for people to kind of think about it's interesting. I don't feel like I intentionally do that. I do that from time to time, but I definitely haven't like, you know, I've encouraged the team, people on the team go, go off and you know, go look at the source code and try to understand, like if we're using some third-party um, dependency 
in our projects, like it's okay to go open those projects up and, and like meddle with them, you know, put some debug statements in there, whatever, you know, just print some stuff out to the log, right? And like you can go change those things to make sure you understand how that's working so it doesn't seem so mysterious just because someone else across the planet wrote and released this and threw it up on, you know, on, on you know, as like some NPM package or a Ruby package or what have you. So, like, it's not that scary, right, to go just go play with it. But the reading part of it, that's interesting. I One of the things I try to do as a just someone that writes technical content or marketing materials, I often will, like, take little screenshots or, like, copy some text that I found somewhere and be like, I really like the way this was expressed. How can I emulate that in the future somehow? Um, but it's interesting, like, thinking about that on from a code, like, this is interesting, like, how they did some interesting metaprogramming here. I might want to re-reference that someday when I'm like, maybe this could be approached differently or get a, like, if you want to be more clever in some ways. Well, also, you know, making sure that the ultimately needs to be boring so other people can understand it as well. <laughs> brevity. That's an interesting balance there. Is there a lot of brevity in code comments and code itself? It's kind of like this weird opposite. Like it would, I would say less if I had more time. I forget who's that quotes from, but you know, Code is kind of like this thing where, you know, sometimes it's better because it's not maybe more lines of code, but more expressive. Right. Yeah. And, and that you will see, I, I think, has happened over the last sort of 30, 40 years of the industry is uh, more expressive languages like Ruby on Rails. Like Rails was my first web language. Before that, I'd only, you know, worked in C, C++. And uh, to me, the fact that it read like English, it felt like English meant that for me, it just felt like, oh, you know, I can literally translate my thoughts onto the computer like really quickly without going through a translation cycle with like C. And I think with more expressive languages, this will happen uh, where, uh, and I think it's also, I mean, now that you see with uh, slightly more modern languages where you are no longer telling the computer what to do, oh, sorry, you're telling the computer what to do, but not how to do it. So C is very... Uh, you know, dictatorial in that way or imperative in the way that it tells the computer how to do what it needs to do. And we are getting, I think, with code more, there, there's brevity in the code because we're writing lesser, but we're actually getting a lot more expressive in that in that brevity, as you said. Uh, we're seeing one sentence and it means so much more underneath the hood. It's very, very true. So a couple of quick last questions for you. Let's imagine there's Hopefully, a few people listening to this episode, and they're working and they're they work on a small team. You know, maybe they're they've been facing a lot of friction with some of the, the projects they've needed to work on recently. But they may, they've maybe advocated or felt like they've advocated a few times where to like whoever is making decisions about what they can work on next or what can be prioritized about paying down some technical debt or refactoring something. But they've heard not right now, maybe a few too many times, so they've stopped asking. Do you have any recommendations on how they could approach? their next conversation to rather than maybe just go find a new job. So somewhere that will let them clean some of those messes up. You have any, any advice that you could offer them? A, a couple of things. Uh, this is uh, a very natural sort of cycle that happens at times in certain teams in certain times. Uh, one of the things that I've seen work well is paying off technical debt or, you know, doing something slightly different need not be a whole project. If you leave the code a little better than you found it, so whatever bug you're fixing, whatever feature you're doing, instead of saying that, hey, you know, it's a two-day feature, say it's a four-day feature. And spend that little extra time cleaning up your little corner of the world. 
And the more you kind of do that, so there is an itch that you're scratching. There's that itch about, oh, you know, I want to be, or I want to get better at this. I want to write more maintainable stuff. I'm trying to make it better for the future, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So you're scratching that itch. And the more you kind of do that, then it becomes slightly easier to to show other stakeholders, uh, business or technical up the chain that, oh, you know, the reason that we are able to do this today, three months down the line is because three months ago, this is what I did. And then it sort of starts that little bit of that that cycle where, you know, people start to see the value of, oh, you know, this is, we should do more of this, or we should do more of X or Y or Z. That's one. Uh, the other is, uh, and I've seen this at with, I think, varying levels of success. Uh, the other thing I've seen is where engineers have gone literally over a weekend or a hackathon or et cetera, and just done this whole thing. It's hacky, it's POC, but they've gone and they've just done this and they come back on Monday and they're like, hey, you know, you weren't letting me do this on, on company time, but I've gone and I've done this. See, this is what it looks like. This, I would say, is like varying levels of success depending on uh, why that project wasn't being greenlit before. And I think uh, Google has this very famous story where somebody wanted to build an ad blocker. Uh, they weren't being let to do so. And suddenly this person just did it. He was showing something else to, I think, Larry Page in some meeting. And Larry just commented, why am I seeing so many fewer ads? This is so much more pleasant. And he's like, yeah, it's that ad blocker that you wouldn't let me write. So I've written it. It's here. It's on my system. And that's why you're having a better experience on Google right now. And yeah, ad blocker was lit like that day for Google. So it's varying levels of success. You might hit gold or if not, you've learned something over a weekend, I would say. Like, so give it a shot. But don't give up. Just don't give up. <laughs> I, I, one of the things you had mentioned there was to, when you do those, make those small little improvements, it, it sounded like to, to talk about that and kind of highlight it and like remember that you did that. Just also remember, it was probably for your own good, good to keep some sort of log of sorts of little things in areas you have made it, been able to make improvements or things that your peers have done so you can acknowledge them like, hey, thank you for that thing that you did two months ago because it saved me time on this thing now. And I feel like that can help reinforce it as a team as well. So if someone listening would like to tackle some technical debt but hasn't been able to maybe have the time for it or get their approval on it, but someone else has done something in the past, highlight that. I would just encourage you to like let them. It's we probably don't share our appreciations with each other enough as a development team. So, one of the things that and this fun little thing I've done and I've had moderate success was because we inherit projects sometimes. So, there might be projects that someone worked on like years ago, and I can look in the Git log history, and I'm like, oh, I I think I can find that person and be like, I really like the way this was done. You haven't worked on this project in seven years, but just want to say thank you. You're making my life easier. Like that, that, that can be helpful. So don't feel, you know, feel free to say thanks to somebody for something that made your life better today. So anyway, just some thoughts. Yeah, I'm sure you made that person's day or week. I, I, hopefully, maybe, maybe. Hi there. We hope you're enjoying this week's episode of Maintainable. While you've been listening, has anyone crossed your mind who might be looking for help with their Ruby on Rails application? Planet Argon, the producer of Maintainable Podcast, would love to meet them. In fact, we've got a pretty sweet referral bonus program set up. If you send someone our way and they sign up for Planet Argon services, we'll give them a $1,000 discount. And your reward? 
we'll send you $1,000 just for connecting us to the right person. Sounds like a win-win for everyone. Head on over to planetargon.com forward slash referrals for more info. That's planetargon.com forward slash referrals. All right, let's get back to this week's episode. Couple of the quick last questions. Is there a non-software book that you find yourself recommending to people in our industry? Non-software book. Okay, so uh, there is this book called uh, The Score Takes Care of Itself or The Score Will Take Care of Itself. Uh, it's by uh, Bill Walsh. Uh, he's a football coach. And it's a really, really good book about processes. I mean, like it's about how you do the small things is how you do the big things. So it starts from do you tuck in your T-shirt? Do you wear a tie? Are your shoes, uh, are your boots polished, uh, etc.? So it's about how you do the small things that lead to, and he's one of the most successful, I, I don't follow football, but from what I understand, one of the most uh, successful football coaches out there. So that's that's one book. Uh, the other one is uh, by Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. Uh, this other book that I really liked was uh, How to Fail at Almost Everything But Still Succeed. I think that's the title. It's a long sentence as a title. But again, it sort of talks about very similar things about how do you trick your brain into doing stuff that you don't really enjoy. So, um, I mean, you came back from a jog today morning. I'm sure there are some mornings where your brain doesn't really want to go out in the cold and jog at like 6 a.m. in the morning. So the book talks about how, you know, just just get up, wear your shoes, tell your brain, we are not going jogging. All I'm doing is wearing my shoes and I'll get my coffee. But then by the time you're in your shoes, automatically then triggers like a little sequence of events that you will go jogging. So that's a really good book. And interesting you mentioned that. Today was day 829 in a row that I've gotten out for a bike ride or a run or a hike, or a long walk. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. One of those big build little weird habits. And it's, so I don't know what it's like to not do it anymore. Um, <laughs> so, but it, but it, it's because of those small little like habits you've, I've introduced. Like I put my clothes out the night before, you know, it's ready to go. I put my shoes, I just have this routine in the morning. I don't have kids. I don't have any, you know, I'm not, so I have that, I wouldn't say luxury, but I have the benefit of like, I don't have to worry about anyone. My wife is still asleep. I'm at the door, you know, I'm going on a run and it's just something I do for myself every morning, but I don't know how to stop. <laughs> so if you, if you have any recommendations on how to stop, because I don't want to start over. Uh, I feel like that would be really hard yeah. for me. Yeah. So yeah, those two books are really good. Uh, I think they've helped me sort of look at the world in a slightly different way. Those are great. I'll definitely include links to both of those in the show notes. With that, is there anywhere outside of, I'll include links to AppSmith and everything. Is there, where can people and listeners uh, follow your thoughts and ruminations about software development online? Uh, so Twitter is one place. So my Twitter handle is Mohan Arpit. Uh, so I'm available on Twitter. Uh, otherwise, I unsuccessfully maintain a blog at arpitmohan.com. Like I said, I, I maybe post once a year, uh, not as much. But otherwise, Twitter is the place to find me. Excellent. I'll definitely include links to those for those listening. And it's been such a delight having you join us on Maintainable, Arpit. Thanks so much for talking shop with us. Thank you so much, uh, Robbie, for having me on board today. And I really appreciate the time. Likewise. Have a good rest of your day. Cheers. Cheers.